Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. of us who pay close attention in Sunday school, a troubling dissimilarity may begin to appear between what we are told of God's personality and what we learn of it from his actions. For example, we're told that God is merciful, just, compassionate, and the very definition of love and forgiveness. However, the Bible lays out God's primary qualities very differently. He's jealous, petty, unforgiving, bloodthirsty, vindictive, and worse. Originally conceived as a joint presentation between influential thinker and best-selling author Richard Dawkins and former evangelical preacher Dan Barker, the book we will be talking about today, God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction, provides an investigation into this rather serious discrepancy. Barker combs through both the Old and New Testament, as well as 13 different Bible editions, presenting powerful evidence for why the scripture shouldn't govern our everyday lives. Dan Barker is a former evangelical minister and current atheist. He's the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, co-host of Free Thought Radio, and co-founder and board member of The Clergy Project. A widely sought-after lecturer, debater, and performer, he regularly discusses atheism and life's meaning and purpose in the national media, with past appearances on Oprah, The Daily Show, The O'Reilly Factor, Good Morning America, and many others. He's here with me today to talk about this witty, well-researched book and explain to us how the evidence in it suggests that we should move past the Bible and clear a path to a kinder and more thoughtful world. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Dan Barker to talk about his book, God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction. So, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a real, real pleasure. Good. You have a very interesting story for how you eventually came to be the atheist crusader you are today, and I was wondering if we could start with you telling us about that journey. Well, maybe crusader is the right word. Uh, it comes from the word cross. I used to be a crusader for Jesus years ago, raised in a Christian family, and then I was called to the ministry. I put that in quotes. I was called to the ministry because that's what it felt like. And I started preaching at age 15. I got a degree in religion from Azusa Pacific University. I was an associate pastor then of three different churches in California. I was ordained to the ministry. I was a Christian songwriter. In fact, I'm still getting royalties from some of that music way back in the 70s. Missionary to Mexico. I was a cross-country evangelist for eight years, preaching the gospel, thinking that Jesus was going to return any minute and call us all to heaven. And so I thought we were living in the end times. And um, I was in the pulpit preaching what I was convinced was the good news. And then in my early 30s, I gradually, over four or five years, changed my mind. And without wanting to, I ended up sort of a newborn baby atheist. That was in 1983. Amazing. Okay. Um, so can you tell us uh, about the writing of this book? I believe there's an interesting story behind that. Well, since I was a preacher and uh, preached from every book of the Bible, I um, put that to good use. And now, now that I am, as you say, a crusader, maybe I'm still, maybe once a preacher, always a preacher. I don't know. <laughs> but now working with the Freedom from Religion Foundation, which I joined in 84 and I went to work for in 1987, I still get to speak. I still get to go up and do debates and lectures and that. And I put to good use the what I learned from reading the Bible because I think most Christians don't actually read the Bible. They, they know a few verses. They go to church and they hear a few sermon verses. But most people don't even read it. In fact, many preachers don't even really read the Bible. They do what you might call uh, sermon texts or, or proof texts. So uh, I still get to use material from the Bible in my debates and such. And uh, I was giving my story in Iceland, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe, um, at a humanist conference. 
and the scientist Richard Dawkins was there. Oh, it was 2006. And he heard my story of being preacher to atheist, and he thought it was very interesting. In fact, he liked it so much that at the last minute, he got the publisher to add a paragraph about me in his book, The God Delusion. And if you read to the end of The God Delusion, you'll see that he added that. There was some space that didn't cause any text wrap, so he was able to add that in. And uh, so over the years, we've been in touch with this or that project. Um, he wrote a wonderful foreword to my book, Godless, which tells the story of why I became an atheist after 19 years of preaching. Uh, but then, um, if you remember the God Delusion in Chapter 2, the very first sentence of Chapter 2 of the God Delusion, which came out in 2006, uh, Dawkins has that famous sentence about the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. And he goes on and on with these 19 nasty adjectives that describe what, what he found when he read the Old Testament. So uh, he, uh, he's been criticized more for that one sentence than anything else he's ever written or ever said. And in fact, the uh, rabbi, the lead rabbi in London, uh, called it anti-Semitic for him to say that. Um, although the rabbi later, to his credit, the rabbi changed his mind and said, well, you're not criticizing Judaism, you're criticizing this character in the Bible. <clears throat> so in 2014, uh, Richard Dawkins sent me an email and said uh, he wanted to produce a PowerPoint slide. Well, we, we both use Macs, so it's a keynote slide. Uh, documenting each one of those 19 adjectives from the Bible. And so he was going to use it during his talks. And uh, he said, can you help me, Dan? Can you help me find some verses? And he wanted to make what he called a spider diagram, where you have the first part of the sentence in the middle, the body of the spider, and then these 19 legs going out. And then you could click on, for example, ethnic cleanser. You could click on ethnic cleanser, and then the verse would pop up that says, you shall drive out all the inhabitants from the land, for I have given you the land to possess. And so we were working on this, and it was kind of fun. And I was amassing verses for each one of those adjectives. And it became a much bigger project than we had anticipated. In fact, there was more than 1,000. There was about 1,500 verses that I came up with using the Old Testament to document each of those. And then Richard said, you know what? This would actually make a good book. Uh, pun intended, the good book, you know. Uh, he said, and it was his idea, you know, if you take each of these and make a chapter for each one, you would have a book there. Well, that's how the book was born. Uh, at his suggestion and based on his famous sentence, um, God, the most unpleasant character in all fiction, became uh, the book that it is now. It took about 14 months of research and putting it together, getting up early in the morning, um, because it's, it wasn't part of my normal FFRF duties. It was a separate thing. So I would get up early and for about 14 months work on it. Uh, but that's the origin of the book. And then um, during the research, I discovered about eight more characteristics that Richard had overlooked. Well, maybe he didn't overlook them. Maybe he thought 19 was enough, right? But I found eight more. And so part one of the book I titled Dawkins Was Right. And part two of the book is my eight more characteristics, which I title Dawkins was too kind. And then I go into, <laughs> I go into pyromaniacal, um, cannibalistic, aborticidal, believe it or not, uh, angry, and, and a few others that uh, round the book out. That's right. Yes, it's a veritable uh, encyclopedia of um, of unflattering or or. Uh, versus the Christians might wish that we would ignore or forget about. Um, but yeah, okay, so I wanted to start with um, with uh, some of the material you cover in the introduction. You address some basic questions about how you approach the act of reading the Bible in terms of textual interpretation and context as a way to anticipate and respond to the predictable criticism. For instance, you suggest uh, letting the Bible speak for itself, and you mentioned how frequently Christians try to sweep unflattering and violent passages from the Old Testament 
under the rug by suggesting that they're either out of context, but you don't find this convincing. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, that's one of the two basic arguments they use. You're taking it out of context, or some of them will say you're taking it too literally, right? Too literal. And uh, so I respond to both of those. And um, what a lot of Christian apologists try to say in defending the Bible is that an average reader really doesn't understand it unless you become an expert, unless you get a PhD in the biblical languages, unless you really understand the whole context of the Bible. Uh, and I, th I think what they don't realize is they are undercutting the reliability of this God that they claim to worship. Because if the Bible is not easily accessible to anyone, anyone who opens a, a drawer in a hotel room to find the Gideon Bible, if those Bibles don't come accompanied with some experts and some scholars explaining what it really means. It should be just available and accessible at face value. Otherwise, God is inept. He did a poor job of communicating his important message to the world. So we should be able to just pick it up and read it at face value. Obviously, there's metaphor. Obviously, there's, you know, when, uh, when Jesus said, I am the door, Nobody thinks there's hinges in a doorknob. I mean, we do understand, even fundamentalist Christians understand there's metaphor. So um, usually what they mean by context is not the context of who wrote it and when they wrote it, who was their intended audience, what were the allegories and the styles of the words at that time. Usually what they mean by context is my theology. If you look at the Bible in the context of my theology, you'll see that even though God didn't said something that looks horrible, it was actually good. Because we can find some other verses like in the New Testament that say, God is love. And if they can find two or three verses in the Bible that say God is love, suddenly the other 1,500 horrible verses disappear. So who's taking it out of context? If I can come up with 1,500 verses and they can come up with three, I think they've got it backwards. Well, uh, as you had already mentioned, uh, you've organized your book into two sections, the first being Dawkins was right, and the second, Dawkins was too kind. So we'll start with the first, um, and it basically lists um, many, many passages from the 39 books of the Old Testament, organized by characteristic with your commentary. So, of course, we don't have the time to cover every one, as there are 28 characteristics that you address in total, um, and oftentimes dozens upon dozens of examples for each one. But uh, we'll try to give it a good overview. And I want to encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of your book if they've ever been interested in having a handy reference for the most damning biblical passages, basically. As I mentioned, it reads like an encyclopedia. Of, of all of those. So it's a really, really handy uh, reference. So you begin with jealousy, or what you also call shaky vanity. And I'm guessing you start here because this is perhaps God's most dominant characteristic, uh, as it appears in the Bible, um, and also perhaps the most jarring, according to traditional ideas. Well, I start with jealous because that was Richard Dawkins' first word in his list. When okay. he made, Dawkins made his own list and he ordered it I, you know, I actually don't know how he ordered, the, how he came up with that ordering, but jealous was the perfect one to start with because the entire Bible can be understood from beginning to end as the attempts of this jealous, possessive husband who's, who's kind of like a, an abusive, controlling husband, uh, an alpha macho male husband, uh, to control his property, which was his bride in in. Throughout the Bible, you see the Israelites being referred to as the bride of God. And God even says, I am your husband, and, I, and you belong to me, and you are my possession. And then they're going to build this little love nest in the Middle East called so-called promised land, which they have to go steal from other people so that they can live there and not be contaminated by any other lover. And jealousy seems like a strange thing for this all-powerful God of the universe to... Uh, to think about, to call himself. But even in the um, Ten Commandments, you see that uh, he's a jealous God, right in the Ten Commandments themselves. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, which this chapter starts with, you see that uh, it's all about him. It's all about this, this macho male saying, look at me and only look at me and don't look at any other lover's and don't you dare go even look sideways. If you look sideways at another lover, I'm going to 
torture you and all these curses will come upon you and you're going to suffer. So, and what kind of love is that really? What, what if, um, I think I mentioned this in the book, uh, what if during a wedding uh, the, the groom is asked, do you, do you promise to love uh, and take this woman to be your, be your wife? And he says, uh, yes, I do. And if she ever looks at another man sideways, I'm going to tear her eyes out and pull her hair out. I'm going to spread dog poop on her face and I'm going <laughs> to, you know what I mean? Which actually, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not making this up. That's what the God of the Bible says he will do to his bride, to his lover, if she looks at another, another man. Or in other words, as another, another God. And so that's why there's such an emphasis on idol worship and idolatry and building shrines and altars to other gods, because this jealous God wants to be loved, only himself loved. And I think that's an insecure kind of love. I think a secure love would say, let my bride think what she wants, let her choose me freely, but not force her through all of these threats and all this fire. And, and ultimately in the Christian system through, uh, through the idea of hell. So here we have this all-powerful God who's so insecure that he has to make threats to keep his lover from looking at someone else. That's, that's pretty sad, I think. I agree. Uh, for those who are reading along with their Bibles, you can look at Exodus chapter 34, verse 14 to 15 as a perfect example of everything you're talking about here. And that reads, For you shall worship no other God, because the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I mean, that pretty much says it right there, right? Yeah. You shall not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to their gods, someone among them will invite you and you will eat of the sacrifice. So you point there and you, you outline, or you point again to this throughout this, this uh, metaphor of Israel as um, a woman and how in a lot of cases that's it's a negative thing you know to be feminized is is an insult that kind of old idea so so that's an excellent example because there it all is right there yeah and you see that in the later chapter on uh, misogynistic uh, yeah and you, and you notice even in that passage that you quoted he, he even uses the word prostitute he's you know it'd be <laughs> it'd be like calling your wife a slut because she looked at another man you know what i mean is that kind of ugly language of, of sexist demeaning of women if they have any thoughts of their own, if, if they have any idea of any freedom of their own, you know, to freely choose or not choose. But uh, that verse you just quoted, I often ask people, what is God's name? Do you know the name of God? And they'll come up with uh, Yahweh or, or Elohim. Or, but in that verse itself, it says, my name is Jealous. His name is Jealous, and you don't see, you know, you see other names of God all through the Bible. There's probably what 15 or 20 names, but right there in the very beginning of the Hebrew scriptures, God tells us what his name is, and his name is Jealous. And there's many, many other uh, examples that you find where it says quite clearly that God is a jealous God. Um, so, so that seems pretty indisputable. Yeah, I'm looking through the book here. This looks like uh like 30 or 40 other, wrathful jealousy, furious jealousy, long-lasting jealousy. The word jealous is all through there. Vengeful jealousy, um, hot, insulting jealousy, even jealousy, <laughs> that, jealousy that causes earthquakes, um, jealousy that's uh, smoke out of his nostrils kind of thing. So he's, he's really going overboard to make his wife know what kind of husband he is. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and to continue on with this um, with this streak of pettiness, um, your second section is, focuses on pettiness in particular. Um, and this is where we find some of the strange uh, rules that we still see uh, Orthodox Jews oftentimes um, abiding by, the rules about haircuts, the rules about what kind of underwear you need to wear, how to prepare food, Things, again, that seem a little bit strange for, for such an all-encompassing, all-powerful God to be concerned about. Um, one of my favorite ones that I just have to mention is uh, <laughs> you're, uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 12 to 14, um, which you entitle, Cover up your poop because God might step in it. And that is literally what this, what this section is about, about how to keep your camp clean to to bathe so that you don't smell things that yeah 
it seems to me makes a lot of sense if you see this as a primitive manual for how people are trying to live together. Less sense if you see it as a instruction manual from a divine being. Yeah, well, even then, he's talking about when the troops go out to do battle. If somebody has to go, go outside somewhere, get away from the rest of them and dig a hole. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> and then he says, that verse he said, uh, for the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you. Yeah. In other words, you don't want him stepping on something when, he's, when, the, when God himself. I mean, what if, you know, what if the president of the United States were to go out to, you know, one of these camps and, and just get down to that little nitty gritty petty level about how, you know, what kind of a scoop, pooper scooper you should take with you. I mean, that seems, <laughs> that seems pretty, pretty petty and beside the point. It's almost as if... I know this is a radical concept, but it's almost as if the Bible were written by human beings. Exactly. Yeah. Almost as if it was written by uh, primitive <laughs> men 2,000 years ago to 3,000 years ago. Yeah, almost yeah. like that. Well, and then the next one says, if a soldier has a wet dream, don't let him back into the camp for a while. So <laughs> they're even talking about nocturnal emissions and, and, um, and then how you should smell and whether you should wear tattoos and... Um, and the, the lead verse in that chapter is uh, where God says, God bellows out, I am against your pillows. So, yeah, so. yeah, that was unusual. And you say that scholars aren't exactly sure what the word translated as pillows means, but it would be bands or magic pads or bracelets or cushions. Yeah. Um, it does seem like an odd thing to focus on. Yeah, yeah. because if they're false religions and those gods don't exist, why does he even care? I mean, if there's only one God and people are worshiping the wrong God, why, why is he so angry about their little magic wands and things, you know, as if, the, as exactly. if that was really something important? It was very petty. So next we go on to um, the qualities of being unjust and unforgiving. Again, two uh, points that fly fairly majorly in the face of the conventional story about God. Um, and here you look particularly at God's penchant for killing children and babies. Well, and not only that, yes, of course. Um, and there's a later chapter on infanticide, but it's it's the, the real injustice is not that he's killing these babies, but that they are the offspring of the people that he's mad with until the second, third, and fourth generations. So right. it'd be like if my great-grandfather committed a crime, well, one of, my, one of my kids has to drown, right? I mean, and that, that, what kind of justice is that? It's really, a, a, you know, massive over-revenge is what it is. And you see that all through the Bible. He's, he's right. bellowing how big and angry he is and, and as if... The children not, are not only responsible for the acts of their ancestors, but the, the, the children, that family, just by being in the family, you're guilty. Just by being born into one of those families, you deserve the punishment. And that is unjust. There's no court of law that would uphold that kind of sentence against somebody who commits a crime. And yet God does it all the time. Right. And I could draw uh, a lot of examples here, but to go back to the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, uh, he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third or fourth generation of those who hate me. So there you have it. Yeah. yeah. But there's many, many examples. Yeah, of others. You know, and God punishing David's wives because of something David did. And, and I'm going to take your wives out into the rooftops and they're all going to be ravished and raped by other men. There you go. So they are being punished because of something he did. As if, as if, and this is what they actually thought, as if the wives were just property of the male and the way to get at the man is to do something to his property. Yeah, that's right. That comes back over and over again as well. Um, related to this, you look at evidence of God's uh, vindictive and bloodthirsty nature. Um, and I found there was a really uh, particularly interesting example. You talked about, um, you compared uh, some questioning of Moses that is really very similar to the early Protestant uprising um, and how in the 
in the Old Testament version, instead of, um, I think it's Martin Luther, instead of Martin Luther who carried on to create the Protestant church, uh, when these similar kinds of questions are put to Moses in the Old Testament, um, God basically says that uh, all of them are going to be killed. Yeah, that was uh, Korah, Korah's Rebellion, K-O-R-A-H. Um, That's right. And you would think that um, Protestants would be on Korah's side. Any Protestant who reads that story about Korah, uh, the, the, the Israelites were in the wilderness. And it was, it was something of a military structure where you had Moses and Aaron. They were the big leaders. And then the people were just, were just the dumb people, right? Anything that God said to anybody had to go through the hierarchy, through the intermediaries called Moses and Aaron, the high priests. And so some of the Israelites were thinking, just like Martin Luther and like most Protestants think, you know, many Protestant denominations today have this doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. There is no intermediary like there was in the Catholic Church, where you have these sort of higher level of people between the people and God. And so Korah was one of these uh, from the tribe of Levi. Korah and some of his followers, I guess they called them, or friends, about 200 of them, they went up to Moses and said, hey, Moses, how come the only way we know what God says is if you tell us what God said? Moses comes down and said, God told me to tell you this, right? And Korah was asking, I think, a pretty sensible question. You know, how, how, how do we validate that you're actually telling, what you're telling us is actually true? And, uh, you know, Moses could have said that, well, we're at wartime right now. And for, for the time being, we're going to have to, like, submit to kind of a wartime mentality. And um, so, uh, but he didn't. What Moses did was he just got angry that somebody questioned his authority. Just like the Pope got angry, right? When the Protestants were protesting, that's what Protestantism means, they were protesting the authority of the so-called intermediaries between humans and men. And so what did, what did Moses do? He got so angry that... Um, and I think I say in the book that if this was a movie, you would need really special effects to show this. Um, this the earth opened up, a big chasm in the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and his 250 followers. They all fell down into this pit and then the earth slapped back together again and they were all killed. I mean, th think about that as, a, as part of your surgical armament or arsenal if you had a wartime how could you aim something like that at just 250 people but in any event that's what the bible said happened and so Korah was killed for asking what i would think is certainly most protestants would think is a sensible question what is the authority how do we know that this is true well then the next day um, some of the other israelites were thinking wait a minute Shouldn't we be saving these fights for when we go into the promised land? Why are we killing off our own people here? And some of them went up to Moses and said, hey, that was kind of heavy-handed. Korah was asking a question, and you just killed him off because he questioned your authority? Well, that was a dumb mistake because then uh, a bunch of them were struck dead through a plague. I forget what the number was, 24,000 or something. Uh, so basically, that whole passage about Korah's rebellion was just to reinforce the authority, the unquestioning authority of the clergy or priest who is in charge of everybody else. You just shut up and listen, and here's what you have to do, or else you'll be killed. Right. Next, I want to uh, look at uh, God's various bigotries, uh, which include misogyny, homophobia, and racism. Um, so, and many of these, of course, double up. I think we've already talked about uh, women's or the misogyny in the Bible. Um, but in particular, uh, this, like you mentioned, there's just very little valuing of women. They're often talked about being um, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, as if that could just be a normal thing. <laughs> yeah, and well, and you, and the the female only gets half the price of the male. There's a difference right there. And females are treated differently. And there's talk in the Bible. I'm sure you've read this chapter that. Um, if a slave owner uses the female for sexual purposes, if she goes free, she can't be married to some other man. There's all these different rules. And if two slaves get married, 
uh, with, if the husband is set free, the wife has to stay back. So it's, it's not like you hear a lot of Christian apologists say, well, slavery in the Old Testament was a different kind of thing. It was kind of like indentured servitude. But um, what boss, you know, suppose a husband and wife work for a company and then the husband leaves. What boss gets to keep the wife as property when the husband leaves? So obviously females were viewed as property. And you see that even in the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's um, slaves or cattle or possessions or wives. The Ten Commandments was obviously written by men for men, and wives were just a measure of a man's wealth. So you see that all through the, the entire Bible. I wanted to talk to you about the story of Lot, um, because that's a particularly hideous story, um, which includes both misogyny and homophobia, of course. Um, would you be able to run through that story with us? Yeah, and uh, I might be the first to point this out. I don't know. Others may have also noticed this. But the story of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, really is part two of a three-part saga that all ties together with the overarching theme of the patriarchal males needing to have male offspring to continue their inheritance and to protect their property. So before Sodom and Gomorrah, you have the story of Abraham and Sarah not having a child, needing to have offspring. And you know, God and the angels come up. And actually, when God and the angels come up to Abraham to start the three basic Abrahamic religions right there, promising Abraham that he would have a son, and there would then there would be, you know, a multitude, the number of stars would be the descendants. That really is the beginning of those three religions. Well, God and those two angels were actually on their way to Sodom when they stopped off at Abraham's tent to give him this news. And of course, they were eating lunch. And, uh, you know, Sarah, how old was Sarah? 90 or 100? She was laughing because she was too old to have children. In any event, um, they continue on. And this is where, as, as the angels leave, Abraham tries to argue with God about, well, you know, you can't destroy Sodom because my nephew's there. My nephew's name is Lot. He just moved to Sodom. And, you know, the bargaining that happened in that story where Abraham tries to bargain God down. What if you find 50? What if you find 20? He gets God down to 10. And God must have known there weren't even 10 who would consider themselves righteous. So part two of the saga is then the Sodom and Gomorrah story where Lot conveniently meets these angels at the, at the gate of the city of Sodom brings them in, and of course the Sodomites, that's where we get the word sodomy, the Sodomites see these good-looking angels walking, and they're going, who are those guys? And they want to they want to know them. In other words, they want to have sex with them, basically. Uh, and, uh, you know, God says, this is a, a wicked city because of the way these men are. So you can see some justification for uh, uh, homophobia in the Bible. Not that the Bible is right, Sometimes in, in my debates and talks, I say that uh, if the Bible says homosexuality is wrong, which it does, then the Bible's wrong, not homosexuality. We should use our judgment. But in any event, uh, Lot then says, says to, the, to the men of Sodom, uh, don't mess around with these two guests of mine, these two angels. I'll throw out my daughters and my two daughters, you can take them and do whatever you want with them. So <laughs> the daughters were property. They were sexual property to be used by other men. And, of course, the Sodomites didn't want the, the, the girls. They wanted the, the angels. And so that's that whole story of Sodom and the fire and brimstone. But then we go to part three of the story. Part three was when Lot and his wife and the, and the daughters escape from the burning city, and they're rocking away. And, of course, Lot's wife turns back to look. Who wouldn't turn back to look at the home you just had to leave, you know, as if that was some big horrible sin. She was turned into this pillar of salt. <clears throat> and Lot and his two daughters then, they go out into the wilderness. And part three of the story continues with the daughters, believe it or not, and only a man would have written this, the daughters who had just seen their husband offer their bodies to be raped by a mad crowd of men. Uh, the first thought that comes to their mind, and after seeing their own mother being turned into this geological formation, the first thought that comes to their mind is, Oh no, our father now will not have any male offspring, not, will not have any descendants. What are we going to do? 
I mean, what girl in her right mind would have that as her thought? But anyway, the writers put those thoughts in the minds of those girls. And so the girls get their dad drunk and they, they sleep with their dad, with Lot, so that Lot can have offspring. The girls figure out this scheme so that, and <laughs> here are these young girls who know what to do with this drunken dad and they each get pregnant. And there you go. Now Lot now has some offspring of his own. So you see those three stories, part one, part two, part three, all have to do with the patriarchal need to have offspring. And that's why homosexuality was bad. Not because of the act itself, but because homosexuality does not lead to offspring. It doesn't lead to the patriarchs being able to continue their inheritance. That was the sin of Sodom. It wasn't the Hmm. actual sexual act. Oh, that's an interesting take. Uh, I mean, the irony is just so thick. The idea that um, the the story that supposedly condemns homosexuality also, in the other hand, um, promotes incest is just rather unbelievable. And like you point out, the idea that it was these two virgin girls' idea to sleep with their father because they were so concerned about his ability to have offspring. My own personal little theory is that, because uh, I think it says that um, the the descendants by those two daughters uh, continue to become great tribes. I wondered if the tribes knew that their origins were incestuous or, you know, in some cave somewhere via an incest and they invented this dramatic story to somehow say, no, 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 it was actually really quite grand and and yeah. we were chosen and God spared us and blah, 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 just to make up for the uh, embarrassment perhaps that originated in that cave. But that's mm-hmm. just a personal personal theory. Well, either way, it's kind of icky. It, is, it <laughs> certainly is. Um, yeah, and you'd mentioned before as well, to go back to the bigotries, um, the racism as well, uh, as you already hinted at, the uh, Israel is the preferred race. And so there's quite a few um, uh, verses that talk about um, the punishment that will come for Israelites intermingling with other races. Yeah, and we have to be careful to um, state that uh, racism is broader than just skin color. Uh, and the, the United Nations, you can, you, can, you can consider racism to be any ethnic group for whatever, or even a religious group. It's a separate group of people. And you see all through the Old Testament that there are these different groups of people that God tells the Israelites, don't you mix with them. Don't you even, don't intermarry with those people because they're bad. The reason they're bad is not because they're doing bad stuff. Of course, all cultures have done bad stuff, even the Israelites. But that's not the reason they're bad. The reason God says they're bad is because they worship a different God. They build pillars and altars and idols to other gods. That's why you should not intermarry with these other people, even though they were actually uh, admittedly genetically close relatives, like the uh, Midianites uh, also descended from Abraham, from another wife, And so they were like sort of southern neighbors, this other tribe of the Midianites, but they worshipped a different god. They worshipped the god Baal Peor. And uh, Moses told the Israelites, don't you dare mix with them, don't you intermarry with them, they're bad. So that's racism. And um, I think it's in that chapter where I tell the story of, um, um, you know, who was the high, Aaron's uh, grandson, Uh, Phinehas is his name, or some versions say Phinehas. Um, one Israelite man actually went down and got a Midianite woman and brought her back and, and they started a family. He brought her into his tent. They were in love, apparently. Uh, and since it was a mixed marriage, uh, Phinehas went into their tent with a sword and he stabbed both of them and killed them right there. Now, in, in my country and in your country, that would be a hate crime first-degree murder of the highest degree. People should be locked up for that. But what happened to Phinehas after he did that? God rewarded him for keeping the people pure. Phinehas' murderous hate crime against an interracial couple was considered high praise. Not only was he praised, but he was rewarded with a perpetual priesthood for preserving the purity of the race. What other period in history can you think of that people used to talk like that? You know, the the Aryan purity of we want to make sure that we're not infected with these bad people. Well, that's racism in the Bible. It's God-ordained racism in the Bible. And we can say very clearly, God himself in that, in that passage and in the Old Testament was a racist. 
For those following along in their Bibles, that's from Numbers chapter 25. Yeah. Amazing. All right. So the next sections are on genocide, infanticide, and filicide, uh, which address the frequent occasions when God commands murder, human sacrifice, and entire peoples to be wiped out. Yeah, well, it's, it's just all there. I mean, the flood, for example. I mean, that's if, if the flood really happened, of course it didn't happen. But if it did really happen, we know that at that time of history, supposedly, according to conservative scholars, um, five, four, five, six thousand years ago, somewhere in there, the population of the planet would have been around 20 million people, <clears throat> which was small compared to today, but it was a lot of people. So all of them were wiped out in a single flood. For what? What was the reason? What, what horrible crime did they do? Not only that, but also all the animals. Every, li every living thing should be killed. So we also see in the invasion of the promised land of Canaan, entire cities are destroyed. Don't leave anybody alive. Don't, uh, don't even leave the animals alive, the Bible says. You should kill them all out. And in one case, uh, there was this, um, this town where the, the tribe of Dan didn't have a place to live. So God gave him this city, and they, they were called uh, peaceful people. Lachish was the name of the city. These peaceful people were living in the city, and so the Hebrew warriors came in, killed them all, destroyed the city, and rebuilt it so that God's people could have a place to live. So that's just pure genocide. And morally, genocide is not measured by numbers. The, the, the purpose of genocide is to totally wipe out every single one, whatever the number is, until they're all gone. Erase that entire population. We see that all through the scriptures. Genocide is a form of ethnic cleansing. You can do ethnic cleansing in ways other than genocide. You can just drive the people out, right? Or you can, you know, uh, destroy all of their... Uh, their temples and their idols and their, you know, you, you, there's different ways to do ethnic cleansing, to, to cleanse your land, to purify it, uh, like pesticide. You can purify it of all this ugliness. But genocide is doing it by killing, by shedding blood. And you see that, you see both of those throughout the Bible. Right, right. Yeah, that, um, the story of the Danites, I believe there was from Judges. Yeah. Um, and then there's always, also the story of Jephthah, Jephthah. Yeah. Um, who burnt his daughter as an offering. And apparently, uh, this is also from Judges, and apparently that um, made God happy, that uh, sacrifice. Yeah, that's quite a story. Well, the story never happened, but it's quite a story. Right. Um, the, right. Is the Israelites were really upset that the Amalekites were, um, you know, invading and taking over. And so they were at war. And... Uh, the backstory is pretty interesting. There's not time to tell it, but Jephthah was actually an illegitimate son. And uh, he went away from home because the legitimate sons were depriving him of his inheritance. So he said, I'm going to go out and become a great general. I'm going to come back and show them. Well, he did. He went out and he was struggling with the Amalekites and he made a vow to God. And he said to God, if you will give me victory over these Amalekites, then in order to thank you, I will offer as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of my house. So he went to battle. He was blessed by God. He won the victory. He became a great general. He became this great big Dwight Eisenhower or Patton. He became this big Napoleon leader. He came back victorious because he, he, he killed the Amalekites. And so when he went back home, well, guess who came out of the house first? His daughter. By the way, his nameless daughter. At least with Abraham and Isaac, we have a name for the son, but it's, it's much less likely that you would have names for the females in the Bible. In any event, his nameless daughter came out, and uh, Julia Sweeney, in her, her hilarious play, Letting Go of God, she tells the story too, and she says, Jephthah, who did you think was going to come out of your house when you came home? And uh, so, in the story, it, it even makes him slimier, because uh, uh, Jephthah kind of blames her. Why did you come out of the door? I, and, and then it's even worse. And obviously, this is fiction because the daughter is complicit. The daughter said, well, you're going to have to burn me? Well, I guess you have to because if you make a vow to God, you can't unspeak the vow. 
So she went along with it. She went out for a few months to, the Bible says, to bewail her virginity, whatever that means, that she was not going to be able to produce offspring, I guess. And then she came back and Jephthah did according to the vow that he made to God. So Jephthah burned his daughter at a stake to fulfill a vow to God. And then, just like with the story of Phinehas, what do you think society did with Jephthah? You know, t- today, if that had happened, what would we do to a man like that, right? If, if, if he, you know, burnt his own child. Uh, Jephthah was rewarded. Again, he became a judge, and a judge was a high position in Israel. And then he lived a long life, and then he was buried with honor back in the town that had originally rejected him, you know, when he was an illegitimate child. So Jephthah lived a full, happy life that was meaningful with honors, and he, he was buried with his ancestors, which was also a mark of honor. So a violent act was, was considered a good thing in the Bible. Uh, you end this section, uh, this this uh, section one, uh, with Dawkins' attributes by uh, going over the more commonly known ones, like his penchant for pestilence, God's pe- penchant for pestilence. That is his megalomanic need to be described in the most grandiose terms. Um, but you also draw attention to uh, his cruelty in sections entitled "Sadomasochist, Capriciously Malevolent, and Bully." And I was wondering if we could look particularly at Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 5 to 26, where God essentially threatens his people if they displease him. He threatens them that he will rape them. So um, this goes back to that metaphor of Israel as the wife or as the woman again. And uh, let me see if I can find it here. It's on page 182 of your book, 181 to 182. It says, if you say in your heart, if you, Israel, I guess, say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you are violated because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. I myself, and this is God speaking, will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. Yeah, well, that at minimum is sexual molestation. And there's other passages that say the same thing or similar thing. You see that a lot. Your skirts are lifted up. And the context of that verse, so let's talk about context, right? Um, The Israelites were asking, why are the Babylonians invading us? Why are the Babylonians so successful coming in and killing? And you know what happens during wartime. Uh, rape is a very common part of wartime. And God even mentions that in the Bible. When the Babylonians come into your town and they kill you off and they rape your women, and depending on what English translation you read, some of them say, like you just said, violated. Other translations say raped. The word was raped, basically. When these, these foreign soldiers are coming into your town and they're raping your women, God says, it's because you have forsaken me I myself will lift up your skirts over your face. In other words, God is taking credit for rape. And there is a, a theology in, in, amongst most Christians that God is not a physical being, right? So he, can't, he needs human beings to do his work. So if you're going to punish the Israelites, you use a Babylonian army to do it. But that's actually God doing it. So... Christians can't get off the hook by saying, well, the Babylonians did the rape. God said he himself is doing it. He's raping these women because uh, basically they were looking, the Israelites, his bride was looking at another God to worship. That's pretty ugly. And there's more of the same throughout the rest of the Bible. So we'll move now to uh, part two, the part you titled Dawkins was too kind. Um, and you add some new categories to Dawkins' original 19, as you mentioned. Um, so in the section called pyromaniacal, you have dozens and do- quite a few passages that reflect a pattern of associating God's presence or his preferred method of punishment with fire, which includes a sad story of Moses' grandchildren being consumed in flame just because their burnt offering wasn't exactly the kind he liked. Um, it suggests to me that primitive people were awed by the power of fire and they considered it divine, which pretty much all primitive people have done. Yeah, well, and it hurts, too. <laughs> Getting burned yeah. by, it's a horrible thing to do to, and to threaten to somebody. And during wartime, of course, fi- burning was, was a way to conquer, um, you know, your enemy. You burn their fields, burn their houses, burn whatever will burn. 
And of course, look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was fire and brimstone coming down to burn. So, uh, and the God of the Bible is described, he looks like a dragon in a lot of places. Fire from his nostrils will come out. Uh, you know, fire, you know, his breath is, is like sulfur is what it says. So I was surprised, you know, I used to preach from the Bible, but I was surprised at how much scorching and flaming and burning there is all through the Bible. And you even see it in the New Testament, which we'll get to later. Uh, that theme has continued, but fire seemed to be, you know, his, I think it was his preferred method of threat. Yeah, here's the, the, the verse you were talking about in particular. It's from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 22, verse 2, 9, and 13. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. Yeah, mm. yeah, it definitely yeah. sounds like a dragon. Well, and, you know, of course I would have said, well, that's metaphorical. <laughs> But why use, why, even if it is metaphorical, why use that as a metaphor? It's obviously a threat to, uh, and obviously the writers of the Bible thought historically that those cities were actually burned by fire, by real fire. So maybe, maybe it was metaphorical, but they were still talking about a God who was very hot and burning, and his jealousy burns like fire. In a lot of these verses, you see a mixture of these characteristics. It's not just... In fact, some of these verses I had to repeat because mm -hmm. it talks about jealousy, but then it talks about his jealousy burns like fire. So it shows up in two different chapters. Yes. Uh, and I imagine we'll find a lot of that in the next uh, section as well, which you talk about the innumerable times in which God is angry, wrathful, furious, and all kinds of adjectives along those lines. Yeah. And indignation. And this is one chapter that I had to cut. Um, angry was about twice as long. And the publisher said, <laughs> you made your point. You don't need to put every, sing <laughs> every single verse about anger. And so I agreed. They wanted, to, they wanted to shorten the book a bit. So I cut out, I don't know how many hundreds of verses about the anger, the indignation, the wrath of God. And uh, there, it's sort of informally organized uh, into different types. Wrath that is being poured out as if it's almost like God has this uh, kind of uncontrollable uh, flamethrower inside of him that if you just tickle it or touch it, it's just going to spurt out all this anger, right? And you see a lot of this happening. Don't you make me mad. And you see that with an angry father or an abusive husband uh, uh, who may, maybe beats the wife or beats the kids. And he's saying, why did you make me beat you? Why did you make me hurt you like that? You shouldn't have made me. It's your fault. You see that all through the Bible. God is angry. It's because you provoked his anger, right? So it's almost, you know, he, he needs to take an anger management class rather than being so hot-headed. But you see that all through the Bible. The anger, the wrath of God. And, of course, that's a favorite sermon by a lot of, of you know, conservative right-wing preachers. The, you know, Jonathan Edwards, the wrath of God over the fiery pit. And you're going to suffer if you don't obey him and just, you know, keep your mouth shut and tell him how much you love him. So you save uh, for last the attributes, which I think will come as the biggest surprise to Christians. And that is evidence uh, that God is frequently without mercy, even in the case of innocent children. He's also fond of curses in the superstitious sense of the word. And he advocates for abortion, the killing of fetuses and even cannibalism in the right circumstances. Yeah, and that surprised me because um, when I was a conservative, so-called pro-life Christian, I thought God is love, and uh, and that um, you know abortion was a big deal. Even right now, it's a big issue, and yet we find these verses where God says, um, "Your little ones will be dashed to the ground, and the pregnant women will be ripped open." God is threatening this. He's threatening abortion as a punishment, and. Uh, I think there's only about five or six verses that say that, but there's enough in there where God actually says. Uh, and, and, of course, during the flood, there had to be pregnant women during the great flood who died at the time. So it wasn't just the women. If you consider that the fetus is a human being, well, the flood was also aborticidal. And there's that strange section which talks about if a husband is unsure if his wife has cheated on him, he can give her the poison to drink. And if she has cheated on him, then God will cause her to have an abortion, basically. Yeah, yeah. Which se 
seems to be pro-abortion in that particular circumstance. Well, it's punishing the woman. Yeah, the woman yeah. had sex out of marriage, apparently, according to this. And the way to tell is that the priest would, uh, <laughs> you know, get sweep the dust off the floor of the temple and then mix it with some water and stuff and make the woman drink this thing. And then if she aborts, then that's proof that she was unfaithful, um, which was using abortion as a punishment, basically, in the Old Testament. Yeah, clearly the unborn child is, is irrelevant in that case. And finally, there's the support for slavery. Uh, there's implicit support for keeping slaves throughout the text, but there's also explicit directions for how slaves are to be dealt with in circumstances where they are sold, in attempted escape, or so, excuse me, in attempted escapes, and when they're used for sex, and so on. Yeah, uh, and this plays into the whole idea that there's this alpha male who controls everything. And maybe this goes back to our evolutionary heritage where they're, you know, like some primate societies do have this big alpha male gorilla who has control of all the resources, all the territory, all the females. And, uh, and so this god, this slave master, needs to own and control everything. And nobody owns themselves. So slavery was the natural order back then. It was accepted in those times. And... Um, the, the Bible is basically a slave manual, and, and as you pointed out, there's all these verses about what to do. And s sometimes Christian apologists will say, well, slavery back then wasn't what we think it was, like comparing it to the, uh, you know, the American South, the slaves in the American South. It wasn't like that. Well, actually, it was, and even worse than that, but the distinction they're trying to make is based on the fact that Hebrews could own two different kinds of slaves. Hebrews could own slaves from the neighboring nations and neighboring towns. In other words, foreigners. And in that case, it was just pure slavery. They could force them into forced labor. Uh, they could kill them. They could have sex with them. They were basically their property. However, if, if a Hebrew owned a Hebrew slave, that was different. So they could actually buy and sell their own people, their own Hebrew people as Israelites, as slaves, in which case they would be more lenient to those Hebrew slaves and let them go after seven years or treat them, you know, uh, less brutally. Um, the fact that you find that second kind of slavery in the Old Testament doesn't mean it was all that way. Most of the slavery was foreigners that you were owning and selling. And in many cases, it was people that you gave them an option. When the Israelites went into the Canaanites and said, we're going to destroy your city and we're going to give you a choice. Uh, you can, you can, you can die or you can become slaves. What do you choose? Well, what are you going to choose? So um, they, were, they, were, they became their possessions. And the Bible says that. They shall be your possessions for life. So for me, I, I found uh, part three was, is maybe the most important uh, because the apologetics you get often is that uh, with the New Testament and the coming of Jesus, all of these difficult to explain, uncomfortable passages from the Old Testament kind of get swept under the rug. That's the per point of the term New Testament, the new agreement. Jesus is writing a new contract between God and uh, the people. And so that's that's how it's sold. And I feel like that's often how contemporary Christians or Protestants anyways try to explain away all of the ugliness um, that's in the Old Testament. Uh, but as you point out, um, every single attribute Richard Dawkins used to describe the fictional God of the Old Testament does apply equally to Jesus because he claimed he was the God of the Old Testament, for one thing. And also, um, when he claims to be the same God, he quotes small parts of scripture that are found situated in larger sections that reaffirm that very warmongering and nasty aspects of the Old Testament God. So he's knowingly equating himself with that. Yeah, and I'm surprised. Well, maybe I shouldn't be surprised because people don't read the Bible, but even a lot of atheists think Jesus was the kind, loving, the son who knew better than the father. But, um, and, and I think I say this in the book as well, that if the Bible were truly a moral book, if it were truly had some overarching purpose, moral purpose and end to it, the New Testament, the story of Jesus, would have been the perfect place to make that point. Jesus could have come on the scene and said, I apologize for my dad. 
He was a jerk. He was a sexist, homophobic jerk. He was violent. I'm sorry about that, but there's a newer way, a better way. He didn't say that. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He never apologized. In fact, he quoted his father, as you just pointed out, approvingly all through the, through the New Testament. And uh, he never once spoke out against slavery. He never once denounced anything that the father said. He, he basically affirmed the whole thing. So if you are a true Christian, you have to believe that Jesus was the God of the Old Testament. He said he was. He acted like he was. It's true that the New Testament is a little bit less violent overall. Uh, they, were, they were living under the, the Roman Empire at the time, so they weren't fighting these promised land genocidal wars like back then with that same wartime mentality. So yeah, there are some differences. And Jesus did say some good things here and there. There were some good teachings that he borrowed from other teachers. He borrowed from Hillel, the idea of the golden rule. And Hillel may have borrowed it from Confucius, who said the same thing, you know, half a millennium before then. <clears throat> so you will find some more gentle teachings in the New Testament. But that doesn't mean that that gets the Old Testament God off the hook. It's the same God. And, that, and, and even, the, uh, even Paul and the other New Testament writers keep talking about the wrath of the God of the Old that was satisfied through the Son, Jesus. So Jesus bought into that whole thing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had to die. There wouldn't have been any mm -hmm. anger to appease. There wouldn't have been any need for people to be called sinners or to be, you know, to be rebellious uh, against this so-called righteous holiness of a God. So, um, and a lot of the advice that Jesus gave, although some of it was good, a lot of it was pretty bad. A lot of the advice that Jesus gave, if you look at it, was, you know, they're not things that we would teach our kids. And I go through a list of things that, um, you know, if somebody steals from you, well, then give them twice as much as they stole. Who teaches that to their children, right? Anywhere. Who, who, if somebody takes away your coat, give them another coat. Uh, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. As if, as if inviting more violence were the way to deal with the violence. He could have said, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, get away from that guy and go out and get protection and try to stop that from happening instead of playing along with that same game. So uh, the New Testament is a mixed bag, but on balance, the Jesus of the New Testament is and was and endorsed those same nasty characteristics of the God of the Old Testament, including fire. Jesus talked about there's a lake burning with fire, that pyromaniacal, that whole idea that there's going to be a punishment. And if uh, the, the branches are burned and those that are don't abide in me will be cast into the flames. And those verses really inspired uh, a lot of the uh, witch burnings and the burnings of unbelievers through history because they read those things that Jesus said. And even he, the so-called Prince of Peace, said, don't think that I have come to send peace. I did not come to send peace on earth. I came to, to, uh, I came for, to send a sword to divide families, to, to separate. So he was a very divisive, very non-peaceable leader. Yeah, and I wanted to point to one very explicit passage in particular, which you point out in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Um, yeah, I. the next time some Christian tries to tell me that Jesus has rewritten all of the old stuff, I'm going straight to Matthew chapter 5. But, yeah. but <laughs> in any case, Dan, we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. This book was a lot of fun. But before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Well, I have a new book coming out. Um... February of 2018, um, which I've been told I'm um, wading into very dangerous waters. Uh, it's called Free Will Explained. And uh, it's free will from an atheist perspective. And uh, when I asked Richard Dawkins if he might want to write a blurb for this book, uh, he said, uh, no thanks. He, he, he said, you're very brave to go into the free will debate because uh, it's a friendly debate, okay? It's not like theology. It's like there's no holy war started. But among scientists and philosophers, the free will debate is pretty intense. So uh, uh, not only do I talk about the, uh, the idea of human free will, whatever, whatever you think that means, but also the question of whether God himself could even have free will. And I conclude that the Christian God cannot have 
free will. But that's a that's another book, and uh, uh, I'm looking forward to the controversy because it's it's one of those issues that philosophers and scientists have been struggling with for millennia. And there, some people say they're at a stalemate, and others say that it's an impasse. But in any event, I think I found a way around it, and I think uh, it's it's different. And uh, uh, Steven Pinker read the book and wrote a really positive blurb for it, and so did uh, Robert Sapolsky, um, also who, whose book about behavior just came out earlier this year. He likes the book as well, so uh, I'm hoping it'll find a home with some. Not just atheists, but uh, anyone interested in this idea and philosophy about free will. That's fantastic. Uh, maybe if we're lucky or if we can convince you, you might come back to talk to us about that book. It would be fun to talk about some of the reception to that book as well. Okay, well, thank you so much again. I really uh, hope we'll be able to talk to you again soon. Well, Goodbye. very good. Thank you. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dan Barker about his book, God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction. You can find out more about the work he does with the Freedom From Religion Foundation at their website, www.ffrf.org. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook, and follow the New Books Network on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. You can also find me on Twitter at Carrie Lynnland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D, where I generally post about science fiction and science and tech news. Did you find this book fascinating? Let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. Goodbye, until my next conversation about new books in secularism.